The following presentation was recorded during Teachers Week at Faith Builders. More information on Faith Builders events at fbep.org. We're thinking about thinking. And so I'd like for you to think with me this morning about this question. What makes a Christian school Christian? Do we know? Give me some ideas. What makes a Christian school Christian? Ah, I see. I was afraid of that. Okay. Absolutes. Compatible. With. The Bible. Who else? Jonas. Singing hymns. How do you spell that? (laughs) We're inclusive here. What else? The teacher. The work of Christ. The work of Christ in the school. Pardon? The definition? Okay. In other words, there is a different one? There is a Christian one, or what are you saying? Okay. So, how do you want me to word it? A unique definition of success or a Christian definition of success? We could keep going. I would like just to focus in on this one just a little bit. What do we mean when we say that the personal life of the teacher is what makes a Christian school Christian? Who said that? Okay, what do you mean? Okay, unless Christ is coming through in the teacher, through the life of the teacher. It's questionable whether we can call our schools Christian. Someone want to flesh that out a little bit more. What does it mean to say that the teacher is the key to what makes Christian schools Christian? Yes. Okay. Someone else. Hmm. In the words of uh, the the Greek philosopher, it's more important to be than to seem. So it's not just enough 
to say Christian things, just enough to have Bible in the curriculum. Our schools need to be staffed by people who really are Christians. Now that that involves thinking Christianly. That involves everything that we are and bring to the table. Now I want you to think with me about another question. What are the important areas in which Christians need to think? You see, if we are going to be Christian and think Christianly, what are those categories we need to think about? There's lots of them. Just throw them up here at me. Okay, I may abbreviate these somewhat. What is the kingdom? Existence of absolutes. Okay, what's important? Okay, back here. What's that? Okay. God. Who is he? Who is man? Over here. We could go on for a while. And it is significant that we think about each of these areas. You see, it's not just enough. We're here to talk about how we get our students thinking. But we're going to have to start by thinking. If we're going to be reliable guides, then it's, it's important that we spend time wrestling with each of these areas. And so what I'd like to do here today is to outline a model, an outline a, a model of worldview development. And I want to give six areas, and I think most of those six are here. We're going to talk about six areas and the questions that go along with those areas that it is vital that we think about and think carefully and wrestle with if we're going to be effective as Christian teachers. Now, just maybe a few words about how to use this model before we get into it. It is a model for you to think from. It's also a model that will outline some specific questions that it's you need to be working with your students in. And it doesn't matter whether you're teaching first grade or whether you're teaching 12th grade. You can, you can bring these questions, these ultimate questions, into the classroom with you. As we go down through them, I would encourage you to think about how you would integrate these into your classroom. Thinking and wrestling in each of these areas. How are you going to do that? Now we're going to take six categories, and I'm going to suggest these six are key and somewhat comprehensive. It's not that they deal with every question that needs to be dealt with, but they outline a grid in which most questions will relate. Most questions would be subsets to the grid that we're going to look at. And so, what are these six categories that we need to be thinking in and we need to guide our students into? By the way, um, I do need to just make a, a side note here. I had kind of indicated that the next three sessions we were going to be looking at some specific tools uh, to, to um, inspire thinking in our students and so on. 
And I decided in talking with, with some of you that it would be better to put that off till tomorrow. And I want to give these categories, kind of outline something of the direction that our thinking should be taking. And so that's what we're going to do today instead of some of the other, but we will pick that up then Friday and Saturday. Our lives and the lives of our students are built on an entire world view. Whether we recognize it or not, we really do operate out of presuppositions, understandings, and beliefs in each of these six key areas that we're going to outline. Now it's important that we think about these areas because they're there for all of us, but if we're not reflective about them, we can have absorbed what is the dominant culture's viewpoint in each of these six areas without knowing it. Okay, so what I want to do is outline the key categories of a worldview. And those categories, the first one we're going to look at is the category of truth. The question of truth. Now some of you have heard me tell about this experience, but whenever I think of truth, I reflect back to when as an 18-year-old, I walked into the visitor center at the Mormon, uh, the Mormon Tabernacle in Washington, D.C. And I was going along with a group of young people who saw it something as our mission in life to go, to go and talk to the, the Mormons and uh, convert them. And so we were going into their lair, and we walked in, there was four or five of us, they set us down, this is the second or third time we'd gone for this purpose, they set us down with the, one or two of their elders, and we talked for a while, some interchange back and forth, and then they said, I'll tell you what we're going to do today, we're going to split you up, we're going to put you, we're going to assign an elder to each one of you, and I want to, I want to talk for a while. Well, I drew an aged Mormon lady. And we were soon involved in a, in a discussion. And we were going back and forth. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that discussion, she said, she said, Stephen, I want to give you something. She said, I want to give you, I want to give you a copy of the Book of Mormon. But she said, now, I'm going to only give it if you promise me something. She said, you have to promise me that you'll read it. And you have to promise me that when you read it, that you will pray before you read it. Well, I said, believe me, I said, I'm going to pray before I read that book. Now, you see something of the flippantness and the cockiness. It was not good, the, the, the attitude that I was bringing to that. But then she said this, and this is what had an incredible impact on my life. She said, when you pray, you need to ask God to show you the truth that's in this book. She said, because if you do, you will experience a burning in the bosom that confirms that it is truth. And my world went into a tailspin. You know why? 
Because just a week before that, at a, a gathering of in a juvenile delinquency center in Fairfax, Virginia, I had stood up in front of them and I had made an appeal to the truth of Christianity on almost exactly the same basis. If you want to know that the Bible is true, you need to pray and ask God to show you and convict you of the truth that's in it. And all of a sudden, I didn't know where I was. Was there really any difference between what I believed and what the Mormons were believing? Our appeal to truth was the same. A few years ago, there was a test done on a group of students. And what they did in this test was they took some cards and they do true lines on the card, something like this. Labeled them A and B. They had them in different arrangements. But one was clearly longer than the other. They split the people, the students, up into groups of ten. And they told secretly nine of the ten to vote for the wrong line. Now here's what they asked. They come to the group of ten and they said, when we ask, I want you to raise your hand, is, it, is the longest line A or B? Okay, that's what you're supposed to do. Is A longest or is B the longest? But they told nine of the ten to vote for the shortest line. And here's what happened. As they begin to vote, at first, the one person who was not initiated voted right. You know when they asked for it, the nine voted one way and he voted the other. For the first time. And the second time. But then after that, they became very tentative and by the fourth and fifth time, 75% of those studied were voting with the group. What is truth? Now, by the way, you may say, well, I wouldn't have done that. But how much of your views of truth are determined by what the group around you thinks? See, that study clearly showed that sometimes what we think of as truth really can be sometimes our adopting just what those closest to us believe. The question of truth is a vital question that our students wrestle with significantly. But it's even more vital that as teachers we wrestle with what it is. See, if we never wrestle with truth, our tendency is going to be to be dogmatic and to, to tend to hold on to what we think in ways that are grasping rather than compelling and inviting. Now there's two questions I want to suggest that are very significant here. And the one is, does truth exist. Is there such a thing as truth? We live in a culture that has lost confidence that it does. And secondly, 
How can we reliably know it? Now you understand that in the parameters we have this morning, we're not going to be able to wrestle with these questions. And I'm not necessarily even attempting to outline a Christian worldview in these areas. I'm trying to bring up the questions and see these are the arenas in which we're going to have to wrestle with our students. A second area that we need to wrestle with is the question of God. The, I'm going to leave you hanging in a sense because I know that you have you have places to go with these questions. And these questions are much bigger than a one-hour session. And so it's, it's important, though, that you see these are not questions that can be decided in one hour. These are questions that demand a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of thought if we're going to do well as teachers. And if we think that in one hour's time we can master truth and God and reality and the other questions, we're fooling ourselves. Questions about God are, is there a God? Is there a God? And secondly, what is He like? The other evening I was kind of looking for a compliment, and so I asked my four-year-old to well, no, he wanted to come sit on my lap, so he was sitting there on my lap, and we're talking a little bit, and so I decided to fish around. I said, Travis, does anyone love you? You know, I'm expecting, yeah, you do, Dad. He says, yeah, someone does. So, well, who is it? God. Well, that's good. Okay, that's great, son. He said, does anybody else love you? Yeah. Well, who is it? Jesus. <laughs> we got around to Dad after a while. Our students are never too young to talk about God and what He's like. You know, I taught with a man a number of years ago who is... Um, his, his specialty is Islamic studies. And uh, in fact, he's, he's now teaching that, I believe, at uh, it's either Oxford or Cambridge. He, his, uh, he works a lot in Islamic law of the 7th and 8th centuries. This was his specialty. And he was talking about how that as, a, as an atheist in college, he decided to go into Islamic studies. But he felt that he probably should head to the Middle East as part of the preparatory work because he was afraid that he would wind up uh, you know, with a PhD in Islamic history and basically hate uh, people from uh, the Middle East. And so he decided, well, he'll go there, spend some time and see if, if he liked these people. Well, he goes there as an atheist, but he soon finds that he can't talk to these people very well because whenever he talks about the question of, is there a God? They look at him funny. And they say, Mr. Melchert, the question 
of is there a God is not really a question. That's akin to like not believing in gravity. How can you not believe? They did not have a category for atheism. And so what did he do? He began to use, he fell back on arguments that Christians use in talking to the Muslim people. And he came to faith through that process. Well, we live in a we live in a society, and whether we like it or not, we may feel like that we have been protected and sheltered from the question of is there a God. But we live in a culture who asks that question. In fact, they ask it in a way that says there isn't. These must this must be then a question that we address, that we think about. You probably heard of the little girl that was was uh, drawing a picture and her mom comes to her and says, you know, what are you drawing? And she says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the mother says, but, but sweetheart, no one, no one knows what God looks like. And the daughter's response is, well, they do now. Well, but you see, when we're looking at the question of what is he like, we run the risk of doing something very similar. And that is making God in our image. What is God like? We need to, we need to wrestle with these questions ourselves and with our students. A third category. Man. Who is man? What is his nature? What is man like? Is man basically good or evil? A number of years ago, this book came out, Lord of the Flies by William Golding. And this, this book raised a lot of, of questions in academic people's minds. In fact, it raised a lot of fury because it took a position that ran counter to, to modernistic thinking that man was basically good. And the story goes, it's a story... How many of you have read Lord of the Flies? A number of you, I'm sure, have. Okay, not many. But let me just quickly give. William Golding is, was not a Christian man. But he develops a thesis in here uh, through telling a story of a bunch of English schoolboys, the best and the brightest that England had to offer, and how that they were on a, a plane that was leaving London during the war, and the, the plane crashes. And it, it crashes in the water and the ocean. But a bunch of the boys from kindergarten on up to 10, 11, 12 years old are, survive and make it to an island, but there's no adults. But you remember, these are the children of the aristocrats. These are the ones that have been well-trained. They're out there on the island by themselves, and at first everything goes well. They're able to organize together. They, they uh, decide to have a group of them that takes care of a signal fire on top of the, the island on a kind of a mountainous area so that if, if a ship comes by, they can be rescued. Another group is assigned to be the hunters and to go out and, and find food for the rest of the group. They appoint a leader. And so it looks like these people 
these young children are able to save themselves. But it's not long before the story begins to take a different twist. The hunters begin to enjoy the thrill of killing. And they decide that might makes right, and they begin to want authority over the leader. And so they divide into two camps, the hunters against the rest of them. And the hunters began to attack the, the main group and actually wind up killing some of the, of the original group. And the whole scene just devolves into chaos. And at the end of the story, there's, the leader is still left, but he's running for his life. The hunters are after him. And they are, they've set the island on fire to, to uh, flush Ralph, who was the leader. And I'd just like to, to read how the story ends. And I'll have to just give you a little bit more context because as the story ends, Ralph is running onto the beach. He's just, just run into the water. And as he runs onto the beach, he falls, he, he stumbles and he falls on his face. And when he looks up, he sees an English naval officer. The officer grinned cheerfully at Ralph. We saw your smoke. What have you been doing? Having a war or something? Ralph nodded. The officer inspected the little scarecrow in front of him, and the kid needed a bath, a haircut, a nose wipe, and a good deal of ointment. Nobody killed, I hope? Any dead bodies? Only two, and they've gone. The officer leaned down and looked closely at Ralph. Two? Killed? Ralph nodded again. Behind him, the whole island was shuddering with flame. The officer knew as a rule when people were telling the truth, and he whistled softly. Other boys were appearing now, tiny tots, some of them, brown with the distended bellies of small savages. One of them came close to the officer and looked up. I'm, I'm, but there was no more to come. Percival Wemyss Madison sought in his head for an incantation that had faded clean away. The officer turned back to Ralph. We'll take you off. How many of you are there? Ralph shook his head. The officer looked past him to the group of painted boys. Who's boss here? I am, said Ralph loudly. A little boy who wore the remains of an extraordinary black cap on his red hair and who carried the remains of a pair of spectacles at his waist started forward, then changed his mind and stood still. We saw your smoke, and you don't know how many of you there are? No, sir. I should have thought, said the officer as he visualized the search before him, I should have thought that a pack of British boys, you're all British, aren't you, would have been able to put up a better show than that. I mean, it was like that at first, said Ralph, before things, and he stopped. We were together then. The officer nodded hopefully. Oh, I know. Jolly good show, like the Coral Island. Ralph looked at him dumbly. For a moment he had a fleeting picture of the strange glamour that had once invested the beaches. But the island was scorched up like dead wood. Simon was dead, and Jack had... The tears began to flow, and sobs shook him. He gave himself up to them now for the first time on the island. Great, shuddering spasms of grief that seemed to wrench his whole body. His voice rose under the black smoke before the burning wreckage of the island, and infected by that emotion, the other boys began to shake and sob too. And in the middle of them, 
with filthy body, matted hair, and unwiped nose, Ralph wept. Now get this. Ralph wept for the end of innocence and the darkness of man's heart. What is, who is man? What is his nature? Now I, I just, part of the reason that I told that story and pulled that book out was because I want you to see how this type of question is all through literature. These are, the, these are the types of things we need to be pulling in and addressing in our reading and literature programs. <clears throat> the great English poet Samuel Coleridge is one day talking to a man that was opposed to religious instruction of children. He said, you know, children really shouldn't be prejudiced in any direction because they're good. They're created good. And you just need to let them just let them choose their religious direction and they'll make good choices. Well, the poet didn't say anything. Coleridge just uh, was quiet. Sometime later, though, he said, hey, why don't you come with me? I want to take you and show you my garden. And so they go outside and they go into an area. They walk through a little gate and, and Coleridge says, hey, what do you think? And, and the visitor said, man, this isn't a garden. The only thing here is weeds. And Coleridge said, well, don't you see? He said, I, I didn't want to infringe upon the liberty of the garden in any way. He said, I was just giving the garden a chance to express itself and to choose its own production. Who is man? What is his nature? A fourth category. Right and wrong. Right and wrong. And the question here is, do standards of right and wrong exist? Or are we at sea when it comes to deciding and to knowing what is right and wrong? John Leo, writing in the U.S. News and World Report, talks about a class that's taught by a, uh, a Kay Howgard. And she teaches at Pasadena City College in California. And as part of her creative writing class, she reads the story called The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. Have any of you read that story? The Lottery. It begins like this. The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square between the post office and the bank around 10 o'clock. In some towns there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 26th. But in this village where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours. So it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer, and the feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still the classroom and the teacher of books and reprimands. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones, and the other boys soon followed his example, selecting the smoothest and roundest stones. 
The pile of stones in one corner of the square guarded it against the raids of the other boys. The girls stood aside, talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at the boys and the very small children, rolled in the dust or clung to the hands of their older brothers or sisters. Now it starts off as just a nice, idyllic scene in some American town. But the story soon takes a very different twist, and you find out that the lottery was an annual ritual that they would go to, go through in order to determine the one person in their village that needed to be stoned to death. And as the story concludes, they've picked Mrs. Hutchinson to die. And I don't think I'll read the end of that story, but it ends with her family separating from her and actually participating in the ritual killing. Now, this is a made-up story, but here's the point. This is a story that has been used in this creative writing class for the last 40 years. And this is what the teacher has to say about it. Until recently, Jackson's message about blind conformity always spoke to my students' sense of right and wrong. No longer. A class discussion of human sacrifice yielded no moral comments, even under Hoggard's persistent questioning. One male said the ritual killing in the lottery almost seems a need. Asked if she believed in human sacrifice, a woman said, Well, I really don't know. If it was a religion of long-standing, well... Hoggard writes, I was stunned. This was the woman who wrote so passionately of saving the whales, of concern for the rainforest, of her rescue and tender care of a stray dog. Right and wrong. Oh, there's still standards of right and wrong, but what are they? Once again, let's be careful that we don't think of this too much as being out there. Even though we find this appalling, this is the culture that we live in, and if we aren't reflective, it will influence A number of years ago, I took a speech class at a secular school in South Carolina. And out of the 20 students in that class, there were two of us who were pro-life. The other one was an atheist. So that gives you something of the flavor of the class. And I remember one of the students there, it was, it was a girl student, and uh, she was a thoroughgoing humanist, modernist. When we were to give our persuasive speeches, I was really curious what in the world she was going to do hers on. And she chose to do her speech on suicide. And she began by talking about her grandmother and some of the medical difficulties that her grandmother had, and how her grandmother tried to kill herself on six different occasions. This was her opening introduction. And we were into it. But then she used that to, be, to begin to talk about how to kill yourself, and laid out 
the procedures and laid out why it was good on a, to be able to do this and to, to commit suicide if you needed to. And then she ended up her speech this way. If I had it to do over, if my grandmother was still here and she wanted to kill herself, kill herself, I would help her. Right and wrong. How do we decide what is right and wrong? How do you decide? Have you thought about what your standards are and whether they're valid? A fourth category. Or a fifth. Is the question of reality. What has ultimate significance? What has ultimate significance? What is really real? What is worth putting your life into and living your life for? Once again, this question is all around us. I'd just like to read to you from my, you can see, a well-worn copy of Berenstain Bears. Now, it's not well-worn because I read this to my children a lot. It's, uh, I was able to find it at a used, I think it was maybe a yard sale, and I wanted this because it has, uh, I, want you to, I want you to hear how this answers the question of what's really real. Come, the wonders of nature await you outside with me, Papa Bear, as your nature walk guide. In all my years as a nature guide, I've followed one rule far and wide. Be alert for any sign or sound. The wonders of nature are all around. Yipe! Now there's a wonder of nature not many have seen. Wow, Papa Bear, we see what you mean. Ah, yes, nature is happening every minute, and some of us get very caught up in it. What is nature? It's everybody and everything. A peacock's tail, a butterfly's wing, it's snails and stones and dinosaur bones, volcanoes, earthquakes, cousin Liz. That's just a part of what nature is. Nature is the world of animals, from the biggest whale to the smallest flea. It's the world of plants, from the tiniest weed to the tallest tree. It's the earth itself, the rocks and soil, and from under the earth come coal and oil. Nature is every person, thing, and place here on earth and out in space. Nature's the sun, the moon, the stars. It's faraway planets like Venus and Mars. It's the mountains, the valleys, the shore, the sea. Nature is you. Nature is me. And then the last page, it's all that is or was or ever will be. Do you agree? They're answering the question of what has ultimate significance. It's this. The stuff that you can touch and feel and see. Now that's how they're answering the question of what is really real. How do you? I remember as a student at the University of South Carolina, during the summers, I was always so amazed because come 1 o'clock Thursday afternoon, the entire campus was evacuated. 
And teachers, students alike, I mean, it was just gone. Where were they going? They went to the beach. And they'd be there till the early hours of Monday morning. In fact, a lot of the students would come in still with hangovers from their beach experience. And then for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday morning, that's what you would hear being discussed. We can't wait to get back to the beach. In fact, one of the teachers said, you know, the only thing that's, that's good about these summer sessions is that you get to, uh, to leave for the beach on Thursday. What is of ultimate significance? What is worth living for? What is worth pursuing? One final category. Sin and salvation. Now you'll notice that the words that I give to this already predispose a Christian mindset. Perhaps it would be a little more generic to say problem and solution. I would like to read what I saw on a stone monument near Hartwood, Georgia. Maintain humanity under 500 million people. By the way, how many are in the United States? Does anyone know a current figure? 260 to 270, somewhere in that ballpark. 260, 270 million. And so on this, this is a big stone monument there. And it's, uh, you go, and this is the, the thing that's inscribed on it. Maintain humanity under 500 million people, or under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Unite humanity with a living new language. Rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Balance personal rights with social duties. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. In this, in this writing, are, there are implied ideas about what man's problem is and how we're going to get out of it. I think I'm going to take just a little time to read to you from the Humanist Manifesto, which articulates a view of what our culture feels in this area of sin and salvation. But before I do that, let's get the question down. Two questions that I'll suggest, and that is, what is man's problem? Secondly, then, what is the solution to the problem? From Humanist Manifesto, it says this, Religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seek its development and fulfillment in the here and now. Do you hear what they're saying the answer is. 
If we're going to live well, we have to realize a complete realization of human personality. That is the total end of man's life. Man will learn to face the crises of life in terms of his knowledge of their naturalness and probability. Reasonable and manly attitudes will be fostered by education and supported by custom. What is the answer? What is the solution? What is salvation? In our culture today, education is seen as salvation. Is that your view? Is that why you're a teacher? It's not the Christian view. A non-Christian man, as an understatement said this, it was Voltaire, man is not born wicked, he becomes so in the same way as he becomes sick. You see, you know what our problem is, according to society today? Our problem is that we either have bad genes or a bad environment. And that's why there is so much hope placed in the Human Genome Project. It's a news article from two days ago. Or no, it was, it was a little bit before that. Mankind will have the ability to control and alter its evolutionary destiny within 30 years using secrets unlocked by the mapping of the human genetic code. See, we can save ourselves. What is man's problem? It's bad genes, bad environment, but man has the capacity to save himself through education. Are you wrestling with what your view is here? It's vital that if we're going to be Christian teachers, we have to think and think carefully in this area as well. We've looked at six different questions that we need to wrestle with. These are questions we need to take to the Scriptures. These are questions we need to take to our brothers and sisters and, and work, work on them together. Because it's in these areas that we, can, that we need to think and think Christianly if we're going to be Christian teachers. Now you're going to find these themes everywhere. In news, in literature, history. But don't, please, don't limit this, the discussion of these issues to Bible class. The questions of God and truth are, are wonderful for in your math and science classes, for example. They're just designed to, to think about truth and the existence of God and so on and what He's like. Reading and literature classes are ideally suited for, this, for uh, talking about right and wrong, questions of man, sin and salvation. But the burden is on us as teachers to know what our worldview is, what a Christian worldview is, what a Christ-centered worldview is in each of these areas, and to call our students to developing the same. Thank you. For the most current Faith Builders recordings, visit ChristianLearning.org. And for more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.